Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamu ala ibadihi ladhi mustafa. Khususan ala sajidi rusuli wa khatimi al-anbiya wa ala alihi al-askiya wa ashabihi al-afdiya. Amma ba'ad. Today we also have another week before we start the actual next series. Possibly another week after this as well. So I thought we'd continue what we started in our previous session. Some reading of the hadith of Rasulullah from the book Mishkat al Musabih. In our last session, we covered the chapter on Babu Tamani al Mawt, the chapter on desiring death. Today, I wanted to jump over to another part of the book, Kitab al Buyur. The chapter on transactional law. The reason why I chose this particular chapter for today is because when people think of transactional law, they immediately start to think of things that are super duper technical and only apply to a certain group of people. That unless you're on Wall Street, this doesn't apply to you. Unless you're actually sitting in a bank, this doesn't apply to you. Unless you're not selling on Amazon or eBay, this doesn't apply to you. And when we look at the hadith of Rasulullah that the scholars narrate uh, in the chapter, the story is very different. Rather, we see the hidayah, the guidance of Rasulullah in this regard, that you will soon see applies to every human being. When we look at the actions of the human being and the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we find that there are, they fall into two categories. The first is what we refer to as hukuf Allah, and the second is what we call hukuf al-ibad. The rights that are owed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those obligations that are actually between you and Allah and have nothing to do with another person. There is no violation to another human being if you don't do that particular act. So for example, if a person doesn't fast, you haven't violated the right of another human being. A person can't take you to court and put a claim against you that this person has wronged you. The same applies to Salah, the same applies to Tilawah Al-Quran, and so on. But because those are rights that are between the individual and Allah, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is our creator, as long as we are mukallaf, which means legally accountable, those rights will exist. 
Therefore, the jurists tend to mention those chapters at the front part of their book. Any of their books you open, you'll find that in the books of fiqh, they tend to focus on ibadat first because they are primarily hukukullah. So how do you pray? How do you fulfill your salah, zakat, salam, hajj, and so on? The second aspect of the rights that are due are what we refer to as hukukul ibadah. These are those matters that are primarily between individuals. There is a religious element, there is an element that a person also owes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but primarily it's to people. Because if there is a violation in this regard, these affairs can and most likely will be presented to a court. So not only is there accountability in the hereafter, but there's also accountability in this world. The fulfillment of rights in this world are very important. Because it's through the fulfillment of rights that there is peace in society. And without peace, naturally there would be chaos, and human beings would not be able to live. Establishing peace is very, very, very important. So how we establish peace is, by first and foremost, helping people connect with Allah and explaining to them that ultimately, any sort of chaos that you cause in this world, there is accountability to the one that you're doing sajda in front of five times a day. The one that you're worshipping, there's accountability there. This instills taqwa, God consciousness, in the hearts of each person. And a society that has a population that carries a taqwa of Allah in their heart will be mindful of how they interact with one another. When taqwa ceases to exist and people don't have an affinity to God and are not conscious of the accountability that stands before them on the Day of Judgment, then they turn into animals and beasts and all they want is to harm other people for their own gain. Society very quickly falls apart. So now you have to create a police state, you have to put cameras everywhere, let them know that God isn't watching, you don't believe that, but we're watching. But the solution to this is that you focus on the human beings, focus on their hearts, help them understand fulfilling their rights towards one another has not just one faida, not only one benefit, but many. First and foremost, you're fulfilling the right of a fellow brother, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be happy with you. Right? Rasulullah said in one narration that Allah is in the assistance of the servant as long as the servant is in the assistance of his brother. That as long as you are serving others, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take care of you. That when you look after another human being and you fulfill the rights of a person next to you, Allah will take care of your affairs. A person makes dua for his Muslim brother, the angels say, may the same be for you too. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taking care of the affair of the human being. You take care of the family of someone who is needy, Allah will take care of you. Allah will take care of your needs. So this creates peace in society and it allows people to live with joy and happiness and freedom not having to lock their children inside their house all day because there is no safety outside. Now when it comes to the rights of people, there are two main areas of discussion. 
there are many discussions, but two major areas of discussion. The first refers to relationships, right? Those people that you're related to, rights due to one another. Father, son, mother, daughter, brother, sister, husband, wife. How do I even establish a marriage? So it's usually in this half of the book of a jurist that they will include Kitab al-Nikah and Talaq. How to conduct a marriage, how to end the marriage. Let's talk about that. All of that needs to be included here. All these rights must be discussed. And after the, that discussion is done, there is a second discussion, which is Kitab al-Buyur, transactional law. Because there are interactions that will occur outside of your family. There are interactions that will occur outside of the people that surround you. Your transactions will happen with anyone and everyone. Anyone that has something you need, you will need to purchase it from them. So now there are rights that are in place. Rasulullah's guidelines on the uh, issue of kitab of are very detailed. So if we see in Mishkat al-Masabih specifically, the author chose to bring Kitab al-Buyur, present Kitab al-Buyur before even the chapter of Nikah And I think that's very beautiful. Some scholars have flipped it around where in their second half of their books, after covering the ibadat and acts of worship, they focused on Nikah first and then went to transactional law. But what the author of Mishkat did, I think is quite beautiful, that he, along with other scholars, chose to present the Buyur um, chapters first. We find this also in Buluri, another famous text. They bring the Buyur chapter first. The reason why this is important is because if you teach people the ethics of interacting with one another and having meaningful transactions, and you're able to buy and sell other with one another every single day while fulfilling rights and being kind and not being harsh and not being mean, you develop a human being. And this is a good way for you to understand the value of the person you're dealing with. One time a person was praised in front of Umar ibn Khattab this guy is this, this guy is that. What did Umar ibn ask right away? Have you ever gone into business with this person? Did you ever deal with him? So the person said, no, I haven't. Umar ibn then said, do not speak too high of him then because you only can speak on behalf of a person with true confidence after you've transacted with someone. When money is on the table, people's true color comes out. We all know the story. Everyone knows this a version of the story that two friends went into business and they can't talk to each other anymore. Two brothers went into business and they can't look at each other's face anymore. It's an old story. It's nothing new. Because that's what wealth does. It brings out the greed in the human being. Someone asked Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani a question. That what is your book on the Sawf? Which book have you written on spirituality? So Imam Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani said, that check in the Jami of Salil, the Kitab al-Buyur, that is my contribution to spirituality. That my book, my writings on transactional law will help you conquer your nafs. Because if you can be a meaningful, strong, upright business person, and you can forget your own nafs, and deal with people while fulfilling their rights and understand that you will need to put yourself second. Even if you don't have to, for the sake of facilitating this, 
then you're not cheating people. And you're not told it's a kafir and we're limited cheat them. You know, it's not like I'm related to this person. Let me go ahead and make a buck off them. Let me sell them a car that doesn't work because make it sound like it works. Let me patch up the house a little bit. They won't notice. I'll get more money out of it. Let me quickly do this and quickly do that and cheat them in some way or another. I'm supposed to fulfill a cooking order. Someone placed an order for catering and let's just, you know, just not fulfill the order the way it should be, but rather add this extra stuff, extra fillers in the meal. So there's less cost that goes into preparing it, and ultimately I'm able to pocket more money. There are a hundred scenarios for this, where this kind of cheating occurs. I heard one of the scholars once saying in a lecture, and he was referring to a Muslim country that he lives in, and he said, look at the state of the Muslim country, that particular country, look at our country. And I referenced this statement of his because even though he was talking about a specific country, I feel this applies to most of us. There are methods. Everyone's in it for their own pocket. Everyone's cheating. I, it's sad to say this. There's no uh, causation here. There surely is correlation, though. That I can go to a store in America owned by a non-Muslim and have confidence that I'm not going to be cheated. There's no causation here. I'm not saying Kufar promotes honesty and Iman promotes uh, bad character. But there's correlation here. It's happened, it happens a lot. But when you go to Muslim countries, when you're dealing with a fellow Muslim, you have to worry 10 times if that person is weighing the meat properly or not. If that person is mixing water in the milk or not. If the item they're selling you is actual method or is it mixed with some liquid that is going to spoil the smell that you have, that happens. I was once in a Muslim country and I had to travel to England and I wanted to quickly purchase an Ithar bottle from one of my sheikhs. So I was on the way to the airport, I said to the brother, pull over here, there was a store. I don't know what the store was called, but there were two big signs. One said, mashallah, the other said, tabarakallah. There were two very big signs on the One side it said, mashallah, on the other side it said, tabarakallah. <laughs> I went in there and I said to the brother, I'm in a hurry. I need to go to the airport. Give me the best data you have, I will pay whatever the money is. So you just bring the best one you have quickly, and I'll give you the money. He did that. He gave me the best data he had, paid a decent amount. It was a gift for my teacher. I didn't care how much it cost. And when I got to England and I opened the data bottle and I presented it to one of my teachers, oh man, the smell of that thing was horrible. The whole thing was just, uh, hopefully, it wasn't a cheap. Hopefully there was a cheat. Hopefully it wasn't, there was some mistake. That's what we can hope for, right? But these things are unfortunate and they're very common. The cheating that occurs. So that scholar, he said that when I look at the nation that's torn apart, has no respect on a global level, I look at my nation and in the countries of the world, it's not one that has much respect. The people who live here are dying to leave this nation. There are a hundred problems that you can point at our nation, but I'm telling you it's because there is no amana in the hearts of the people who live here. There's no amana, there's no trust. And Rasulullah said, La imana liman la amana 
but the one that has no trust has no iman. The one that can't be trusted has no iman because the essence of a believer is that they can be trusted. You can, you should know that if I purchase something from a believer, that person's iman and their consideration of akhirah and their good character will only give allow them to do what's best for the transaction. They won't cheat you. That iman that iman even if it means you take less money home that day, the Muslim is okay with that. Because they understand their risk is written by Allah. That it may be little they take home, but if it's pure, it'll have barakah. And if it, you take a lot home and it's impure, there won't be barakah. And we'll read some narrations of Rasulullah regarding impure wealth and what happens when a person acquires this and brings this into their life. And those words of that shift, they, they always run around in my mind. The state of the Ummah cannot be fixed. No policies can fix anything. No IMF loan can fix anything. Until the hearts of these people are not connected to Allah and they start being honest with one another. Until the person selling the milk starts, stops cheating. The person selling the meat, he stops cheating. The one selling the shawarma stops cheating. Everyone needs to stop cheating. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us that If you don't have the strength and ability to do good deeds, if you're that person that, you know, I can't wake up for the Hajjah Salah, for example. I don't have time to read Quran, which is not a good statement ever to make it ever to say it out loud. But let's just say that's your unfortunate reality where you're not able to read abundance of Quran every day. The least that you can do is at least not be, the least you can do is don't be a negative representation of the Prophet Don't be a negative representation of Islam. The people that you interact with will most likely only interact with a handful of Muslims in their life. Let's talk about the non-Muslims. And you're one of those people. Utilize that time properly. Engage. You don't have to even give da'wah about it. If the opportunity presents itself, alhamdulillah. But make sure when they're interacting with you, they see a rich human being. They see a person that has something that they desire, that they yearn for, that I want this as well. The scholar is right that how Islam spread in the uh, islands of Malaysia and Indonesia was primarily through the Java. Similarly, South India, not North India, the sin story everyone knows of Muhammad bin Qasim, South India, in Kerala and in that region, Islam spread there through Tijara again. These people went to these countries and they engaged in a prophetic manner and they were just so touched that they said that we want this as well. Bring us into the fold of Islam. Now, while defining um, bay'ah, that word, the ulama, they say, al-bay'ah It is the exchange of wealth for wealth. Bittarabi, this is the point I wanted to focus on. That you have two people are transacting, they're offering something of value to one another. Bittarabi, with both people uh, being pleased with the transaction. They both give their consent. They both want to enter into it. This is important. Because if two people are willing to go into this transaction, let's say I was selling the phone, and I said the phone is $4,000, 
and use an I want a phone for, and I, I want a phone, and I understand the value is a thousand dollars. If I'm offering a good product and it's valued appropriately, and that person wants a good product and they're happy with the value, this transaction is going to be smooth. We probably won't see each other again unless that person wants to come by and buy another phone. There's not going to be, there won't be any court case or any violation. Both, both people wanted to go into it. Usually, what happens is that people, in order to bypass this body element of having full consent from both parties, they swindle one another. They cheat. They present something as something else. Ultimately, if they're, you know, if, if you looked at it with a magnifying glass, there was nothing wrong with them, but they knew what they were doing. This happens with marriage as well. One of my uh, teachers, he was once presenting a, a lecture on marriage. He was asked to speak to the community about marriage. And I remember he spent the entire lecture talking about the lughi and istilahi ta'rif of nikah. What does the word nikah mean? He spoke about it for 45 minutes. And by the way, it was probably one of the most phenomenal lectures I've heard on nikah. I really enjoyed it a lot. Because in the definition of nikah, you have the same word that you have in bayah, And he said one of the reasons why marriages fall apart, one of the reasons, is because both people aren't fully aware of what they're getting into and they don't have full consent. There's some pressure involved sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes there's de deception involved. And unless both people are fully aware of what they're getting into, like they understand what I'm getting into, this is it. There's no deception involved, there's no cheating involved, there's no lying involved. These two people understand what they're getting into. And they're both happy with it. They will now carry the weight of the relationship and their relationship will have what There must be that willingness and buy-in from both parties. Now with that said, we're going to start the first chapter in this Kitab al The author, he titles it, Babul Kasabi wa Talabil Halal, the chapter on earning and seeking halal. For today's class, we'll jump straight to Al Fasl al Thalith, which is the third part of the chapter. <coughs> the first narration. There it is. It's by Abdullah ibn Mas'ud al Bismillah. Go ahead. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this first narration is from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu He says that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, the seeking of a halal earning is an obligation after the obligation. That after a person fulfills their primary obligations, they believe in Allah, that they're fulfilling their salah. They've fulfilled the basic obligations, now they have an obligation to also go and earn a halal living. What's the alternative? Either a person doesn't earn, or, number two, they are earning, but they're earning through haram means. We don't want people to not earn, because if they're not earning, they're a violation of haqqut and place, rights being violated. And then if a person doesn't earn at all, then they'll need to go and ask from other people. 
and we'll see, actually we're not going to read the narration today, but there's a whole chapter dedicated to asking. When is it jaiz to ask other people for wealth? When is it not permissible to ask other people for wealth? What did Rasulullah say to someone that he saw asking in the street? He saw a young person asking in the street and he said to him, go and earn the money yourself. You're a young, able body. Don't wait for people to give you money. Don't seek their, their sympathy. Get up. Go do something. Go push a cart. Go and cut some wood. Sell it in the street. Find people who want firewood. It's an easy job, hard work, but anyone, there's no skill barrier here. You can just buy yourself an axe and get started. Rasulullah did not like seeing people not playing their part to earn their risk. Everyone needs to get up and go out and do something. Stimulate the economy, keep the business running, keep the marketplaces you know, rolling forward so that way the, the economy and the community both grow together. Not, not just earning, not just the seeking of an earning, but that what you're earning needs to also be halal. Make sure the money that you're bringing home is through a halal means. The money that you're investing is halal. How you're earning your money is halal. If that's something that you're not sure about and it's something and it's what you do most of your day and it's how you provide for your kids, your wife, your family, and how you're buying this home and car that you spend your life in, it's a conversation that needs to happen with a competent jurist who can guide you and tell you whether it's right or wrong and what adjustments need to be made. وعن ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما انه سئل عن اجره كتاب المصحف فقال لا باس انما هم مصورون وانهم انما ياخذون من عمل ايديهم. So this riwayah is by Ibn Abbas He was asked regarding a person who accepts, who accepts compensation for writing the Quran. What is your opinion on ujrati kitabat al-Musaf? What is your opinion regarding someone who writes the Quran? The reason why this person is asking this question is because writing the Quran seems to be an act that's religious. You're writing the Quran. Should you be accepting compensation for something like this? There is a question, can a person accept compensation for reading the Quran? A large group of scholars um, say this is not permissible. The Hanafi specifically, they don't allow it. Because they say that if there is something that is categorically an ibadah, your compensation is in the akhirah, you can't be compensated for it in the world. I, you can't, I, can't, you, I can't say to you, pay me five bucks and I'll read five ayahs. Because the compensation is supposed to be in the akhirah. Does that make sense to you guys? Like, pay me ten bucks and I'll pray to Allah in front of you. That's not jayat, because you can't accept ujjah al-Qa'ah. This is the Hanafi position, the classical Hanafi position. Then with time, I think the Hanafis did create an opening uh, and did it, you know, lax out a little bit on the issue, specifically when it came to teachers and imams, because otherwise these positions would be abandoned and there would be great harm to the ummah. So they allowed for Quran teachers to, to accept compensation. I don't think there is a contradiction here because what they're allowing for is um, not necessarily the ibadah itself, it's the teaching. As for the imam, you're not paying, no imam would say that I'm being paid to lead Salah. That's offensive. Their compensation is for managing the community, making sure that they block out time to be there as a community leader to answer questions. Right? Hopefully no one's 
being paid to read Salat, if I wasn't being paid, I wouldn't pray my Salat. The other fuqaha, however, do um, give this permission. So he was asked, on Qudrat al-Kitabat al-Mus'haf, فَقَالَ لَا بَأْسَ Ibn Abbas said that there is no harm in this. He can accept the compensation for writing Qur'an. إِنَّمَا هُمْ مُصَوِّرُونَ Because all this person is doing is copying. There is some, there is an image in front of them, they are copying it, and the benefit of copying it is so more people can read from it. So there is an art involved, there is an effort involved, there is a task and skill involved in, in writing it out. And this was actually, interestingly, a preferred profession by some of the scholars of the past. Some of the great scholars of the past, when you look at their preferred profession, um, they actually uh, would write and use calligraphy as their way of writing. And then Ibn Abbas, he says, in reality, those people are eating as a result of the action of their own hands. Like they went out, they earned it. This is something that parents should train their children in from a young age, that learn to earn your own money. It's not a matter of you having money to support your children. That's a good thing. If you have a lot of money and you can bankroll your child right through the 25, that's a good thing for you, not good for your kid. Not good for that human being, not good for that adult. Because as an adult, you need to learn how to take care of yourself. There's a point where a person who is past puberty should actually start feeling guilt of accepting money for free. I'm telling you, there should be a guilt there. There should be a conscience that a person feels that, what am I doing? I'm just taking money all these years, 25 years. A parent's responsibility is to provide for their child everything until Guru, once they hit puberty. A person hits puberty at 13, 14, parent says, no, we'll give you a few more years to get you through high school and whatnot, maybe one or two years of college, 18, 19, and after that, you should learn to take care of yourself. That, you know, mama's credit card can't get me through a meal with my friends Friday night. I should not be using dad's credit card to buy my tickets to go somewhere. I shouldn't be using other people's credit cards and their money to get myself through what I want in life. Now, that doesn't mean that parents shouldn't support their children. They should if they want to. If they see that there's value in it, I understand that a parent would want to put their child through an education because they see value in that. They would have done that, they've always done that, and they want to continue doing that. So their children are at a level where they can compete with the world and engage with the, with the dunya that's ahead of them. That's a good thing. There's no haraj on that. But that responsibility must be learned. Let's read the next one. وعن رافعه بن خديجه رضي الله عنه قال ان يا رسول الله يا ايها الكسب يضيق قال عمل الرجل بيده وكل بيع مكروه. So in this narration we see again a person asks Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam What is the best form of earning? What's the best job? If I asked you what would your response be? Software engineering? Very good. Desi guy. First. What's the second runner up for this? Let's go. Very good. You've been trained well. What's another good thing to do? How else do you earn money? What's a good way? Someone asked you, you what's the best way to earn? What's the purest way to earn? Business? What else is there? Huh? Being a teacher? Engineering? Scholar? Very good. Samosas? You want to feel hungry? Online folks, what do you call? 
folks just sit there and it's like watching a theater movie, they just sit there and watch. I say this to my students on, on campus too. I don't know why they don't write anything. They moment. Of course, the moment's gonna write. He's sitting, usually he's sitting here today in Canada and he's writing. Very good. What else is there? Param, stuff in the book. This is Jenna, she's one of our students, a graduate of Quran. She's trolling us. Learn and teach the Quran. What else is there? What are other good ways to earn? Electrician? Accountant. Okay, let me tell you what Rasulullah said. The answer that Rasulullah said was so beautiful. Amal You choose. He's not interested in the income or the turnaround. He's not interested in how much money is being made. Rather, what's Rasulullah saying? Amal Whatever you do, just make sure it's your best. It's your hard work. That your sweat went into it. See how when we, what was everyone thinking when I asked what's the purest way to earn? What were you guys all thinking? Outcome, right? We're thinking about where are we going to get the most yield? Construction, calligraphy, hands-on art, calligraphy, very good. But Rasulullah sallallahu thought is so beautiful. His, he wasn't necessarily trying to create rich people. He saw someone was trying to create people. You guys understand? Whatever your money is, it's up to you. Islam is not about creating elites that we want a bunch of billionaires and millionaires. It's not a cult. What we want is for people to be good people. Right? And then Nabi also talks about transaction, and he doesn't specify one type of business. What does he say? Mabrur means like a, 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 a bayah, a transaction that has bid it. Bid is like righteousness. Okay? So, kullu bayah al mabrur, the ulama, they say this refers to a transaction that does not have any lying, any deception, any cheating. There was no uh, coercing involved. It's just a natural good bayah. Now, what you're selling is up to you. You want to sell dates? Sell it. You want to sell shoes? Go ahead and do that. You want to make roti and sell it? Go ahead and do that. You want to sell tires? Do it. Just make sure whatever you're earning, it's your hard work that you're doing. That's where your respect and dignity comes into this. Okay, let's go ahead and read. Read the Ruaya of Nafiq This is an interesting one. So Nafiq was a, a prominent tabi'i. Everyone knows uh, Nafiq. Famous narrator Hadith. He says, I used to go for Tijara to Sham and Misr, to Syria and Egypt. Iraq. I started doing some Tijara in Iraq as well. I mean, this guy was really, he was chilling. Got doing business in all these different regions of the world, great big cities. Now what happened is that he, he then went to Umm al Aisha to ask a question. فأتيت أم المؤمنين عائشة رضي الله عنها فقلت لها يا أم المؤمنين كنت أجهز إلى الشام فجهزت إلى العراق فقالت لا تفعل مالك ولمتجرك 
So basically he says to her that I used to do business in Sham. There is an opportunity to do business in Iraq. I'm going to leave my previous business and try this new market. You guys understand what I'm saying? I'm going to leave what I was doing and going to just walk away from that and try something new. She said, don't. What's the issue with where you're earning money? What's the issue with you and where you're earning money from? The Prophet said, once Allah opens up a means of risk for you, once Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates a means, when Allah creates a path of risk to reach you, from a particular angle, then don't close it down. They say what this means is that you are no longer profiting from it. That business has changed. It doesn't carry the same benefit that it used to carry. It's, the business is shutting down. What that means is that the person has actually suffered a loss in the business. One is that your profits go up. The other is that you even lose your rasulmat. That you're in the you're in the negative right now. So she's saying that don't just walk away from a door of risk that Allah has opened for you. Now this raises a big question: What's the Islamic perspective on changing your career? I mean, in the modern world that we live in, it happens all the time. You know, someone's a physician now; they're in IT, and then the guy's in cybersecurity, and you know. Someone guys on Amazon, and he goes to eBay, and he goes here, and he goes there. What's the ruling on changing your uh, profession? So the reality is that if a person feels that there is benefit for them in changing their path, and their quality of life will change, the amount they earn will improve, and that you know maybe uh, the halal factor will increase if they're in an if they're in an area where it's a little etchy and they don't feel comfortable. Or maybe the, the area they're working in is one that they see will dry up. Like this is an area that's not going to exist in, the, in maybe five, ten years, so I should start moving now. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if you have a solid source of income and you're being careless and you're like, you know what, let's just try something else. That's not good. That's what's being referred to. That you have, you know, in Urdu we have a saying for this. They say, which basically means that if you have a, a, a source of income that is in place and you're earning good, everything's set, and then someone comes to you and says, hey buddy, let's do Bitcoin. You need to slow down a little bit. You need to breathe a little, do a little busa, do some muraqaba, do some thicker, slow things down. Don't get excited with every new fad that comes up and you're buying, is it Dogecoin? Kind of money? You're putting money like tens of thousands of dollars into Dogecoin, Dogecoin because Elon put a tweet out. But hold on. Don't be that person. I think that's what this Dewaya is teaching us. He had a Tijala that was successful in Sham. He was planning to close it down and he wanted to just open up a new market in Iraq. And she said, Don't do that. Okay, next narration.
وعن وعن عائشه رضي الله عنها قالت كان لابي بكر رضي الله عنه غلام يخرج له الخراج فكان ابو بكر يخرج من خراجه فجاء يوما بشيء فاكل منه ابو بكر فقال له الغلام تدري ما هذا؟ فقال ابو بكر وما هو؟ قال كنت تكهنت لانسان في الجاهليه وما احسن الكهانه الا اني خدعت خدعته. فلقيني فاعطاني بذلك فهذا الذي اكلت منه قال فادخل ابو بكر يده فقاء كل شيء في بطنه. Okay, so what happened here was Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh had a servant, Yukharij al-Abul Khiraj, who would give money to Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh. He would give him something, right? And Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh would take the money and spend it as he wanted to. فَجَعَلَ يَوْمًا بِشَيْءٍ فَأَكَلَ مِنْهُ أَبُو بَكَرَ One day he came with something, that servant, and he gave it to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh ate it. فَقَالَ لَهُ الْغُرَامِ تَذْرِي مَا هَلَا He then, after Abu Bakr ate it, he said, do you know what that was? Yes. Kind of an awkward situation. You've already had it. This can't end too well. So he said, Mahua, what was it? So that guy says, He used to say, you know, he's the servant said, before I became Muslim, I used to do a lot of sorcery and palm reading and fortune telling and communicating with jinns. And I used to do that kind of stuff before I became Muslim. And I wasn't good at it. I had no idea what I was doing. I used to just lie and cheat. So I had this Dugan Khalid, he had this little, little stall, and he'd just lie to me, oh, the stars are lining up, and the lines on your hands are lining up, and you know, should I get married to so and so? Okay, tell me your date of birth. I'm trying to figure out whether they're the same age or not. Like, I already got that from Musmatch. Something about it. They already checked the date of birth. Why did I check that? So the guys you know, did a word, they create numerical values and they see the numerical values add up between the names. All lies. All of this stuff is deception. They're just taking people on a run. These people have no idea what they're talking about. Is that clear? They're not even they're faking it half the time. So this guy's being honest. <laughs> he says that. So one day I, I so he said I used to do, I used to do kahana and one I cheated that guy. So he owed me some money. He just gave me the money. He just gave me some food to pay me back for that one job that I did, and you just had the food. You guys understand? I did a job once. That guy owed me some money. So finally he came and paid me back. And you just had the food that he gave me. Say that Abu Bakr Siddiq took his hand and inserted it into his mouth and vomited out everything that he had taken. means to 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 vomit. said. That a body that's been nourished with haram will not enter the Jannah. And Zayd ibn Aslam, um, who was Zayd ibn Aslam was a freed slave of Umar ibn Khattab. One day, Umar drank some milk, large of a woman, liked it, he enjoyed it. So he asked the guy, Where did you get this milk from? It tastes really good. He said, What happened was that I was passing by some water, and he actually said, this is the name of the area, and that was the name of the pond that I passed by. And there were some, uh, 
and there were some animals there, some sheep specific, no, some uh, uh, camels specifically, and those camels that he said that were at that pond, Umar because he managed that affairs of people, he knew that the sheep and the goats that he was referring to were all sadaqah. Because he had allocated that particular pond for the sadaqah animals. So animals that were managed by the state. You guys follow me? That would belong to the people, belong to the ummah. That that's where he, that, so now, وَهُمْ يَسْقُونَ That they were feeding the animals water. فَحَلَقُوا لِي مِنْ أَلْبَانِهَمْ So they gave me some milk. فَجَعَلْتُهُ فِي سِغَائِ I secured it in my container. وَهُوَ هَذَا And this is that milk. فَأَلْخَلَ عُمَرْ يَلَهُ فَاسْتَقَابُ Umar vomited the milk back out. Because he did not want to be that person who was consuming the sadaqah milk. Not that sadaqah milk is haram, but he wasn't worthy of it. In the legal sense. It wasn't his to have. It shows us how particular these people were when it came to zakat and sadaqah wealth. That if this is zakat wealth, it must reach the people that are deserving of it. There should be no deception involved. If you lie to someone and accept zakat money, it's going to be against you on the day of judgment. You can get yourself an extra burger in this world. Should I teach you guys anything the story? Pretty bad though. When I was young, I did this once. Allah forgive me. I was very young. I hadn't even reached 10 years age. I was studying in a foreign country. And the mothers of women, they were just in Pakistan. They were, they were, I went from America to Pakistan to study. I was doing Tafid al Quran. So they were distributing zakat money. I saw a long kid, long line of kids all lined up. By the way, no one knows about this other than me and my Allah, and now you guys know. <laughs> so I saw these kids line up for, for something I didn't know what they were doing. It was in the, we used to study upstairs. In the downstairs, actually, the big line. So I asked one of my buddies, what are those kids doing? This brother giving out zakat money. I didn't know what zakat was. I had no idea. I kid you not. I, I, no, I didn't know what that was. I was, you know, a 70 year old kid. What did I know about zakat? So I was like, what is it? They're giving money. Said, what do you do with the money? He said, it's yours. I said, you're saying, if I get in that line, am I going to get money that's mine? He said, yeah. I said, someone less. This is great. It seems like an easy, nothing complicated here, so I got in line. I, they gave me money, I had it in my head, and I was just like, wrong. I didn't do anything. I had money in my head. So um, I did what any normal person would do if they had money, I ordered a burger. One guy was like, I'm gonna go get some burgers, and I was like, hey man, one too. And I say burger in Pakistan is a bungalow. So I had it, and man, that night I got sick. I got sick like I haven't been sick. I vomited all night. I didn't know any deen, I didn't know any Islam, I'll tell you this. But all I knew was what I did was wrong, and I should never do that again for the rest of my life. I felt really guilty after that. Turn that money back. Right? Don't do that kind of stuff. The lesson, it could also be the Bhagavad guy. There's a possibility. <laughs> but whatever the sub was, I had a lesson to learn. And I learned that lesson that you don't take 
zakat money, and second lesson is you don't have one kebab from Baksa. Plus the call. You know, one kebab? You may have one kebab? I mean, it's one kebab. It's snowing outside, otherwise, I would tell you to go to. You guys know it's snowing outside, right? Can you believe it? It's snowing in Texas. When I came in, it was snowing outside. Okay, so last one. And I'm not the other one. Call a minister of the Ashina Tidrahim, or be he did a woman, Haman, Lamia Marina, who started a job. A person purchases a garment for ten dollars. And one of the ten dollars were Haman. Allah will not accept his prayer as long as that garment is on his body. Manishtara. Tawwan li'a'ashirati darahim wa fihi dirhamun haram lam yakbar illahu ta'ala lahu salatan madam ali thumma adkhala isba'ayhi fi udhnayhi Then Ibn Umar took his fingers and put it into his own ears like this وَقَالَ سُمِّتَا إِلَّمْ يَكُنْ لِلْمِسَاصَرُمْ سَمِعْتُهُ يَقُولُ May these go deaf if I didn't hear the Prophet say these words. He's basically saying, if I didn't say that, may Allah cause me to lose my ability to hear. I heard the Prophet of Allah say this. Summita illam yakunin nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sami'atuhu yakunuhu. If I did not hear the Prophet of Allah say this, may I lose my hearing. There was one more chapter that I wanted to do, but we're gone over time. So we'll leave it. Maybe if we have one more uh, session next week. The next chapter is on Musahara, and I really love this chapter. I think the chapter of Musahara, Babul Musahara, it really shows how a Muslim should be when they make a transaction. You guys understand? Like, what's your attitude? What's your stance? What's your mindset? That whole thing is captured in this next chapter, Babul Musahara. If Allah wills, uh, next week, inshallah, we'll come. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.